This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmond.edu. This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of The Joy Challenge. Discover the ancient secret to experiencing worry-defeating, circumstance-defying happiness. Written by pastor and best-selling author Randy Frazee and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Okay, so an important segment I forgot to mention is the part of the podcast where I take a recorder and I visit some of the more dubious locations we'll be discussing throughout the season, which has brought me here to the Mabel Forreston home where my friends Brad and Nikki live. When they told me about the backstory of this place at a dinner party last summer, they warned me it was going to be pretty hard to believe, but now that I'm here, it kind of just looks like a quaint 1920s brick cottage in the middle of a typical pocket-sized LA neighborhood. They asked me to meet them around back at the entrance to their cellar, so maybe things are creepier back there. I will say, it doesn't help that it's after dark. Never been a huge fan of the dark. Okay, here we go. I think this is it. It's funny, actually. Everything else about the house and the grounds is updated, but, but not this. It's a weathered metal door, peeling yellowish paint, rusty hinges. Hey, Cutter. Oh, <laughs> hey, Brad. <laughs> hey, Nikki. I was wondering where you guys were. Sorry, I just uh, went inside to grab some water for us. Eh, no worries. <laughs> but now that we're all here, we should probably get this show on the road. You want to do the honors? Dude, what in the actual Are we seriously going down there? What have you done to him, you maniac? I'm your number one fan. Don't fall asleep. Oh, it's alive. It's alive. It's alive. I'm not gonna hurt you. I'm just gonna bash your brains. What an excellent day for an exorcism. Look at me, Damien. It's all for you. We have such sights to show you. I see dead people. Be afraid. Be very afraid. Exploring fear, faith, and stories that scare the hell out of us. I'm your host, Cutter Calloway. Be afraid. On this episode, we take a hard look at the origin of our fears and consider whether films in the horror genre might actually help us face those fears rather than be held captive by them. What's the earliest memory you have of being afraid? I don't mean startled. I mean genuinely terrified. I'm talking that bone-deep anxiety that paralyzes you while you're lying in bed at night. I remember that moment for me. The year, 1987. I'm eight years old, it's summer, and I'm at my grandparents' house in Snyder, Texas. 
The Texas Chainsaw Massacre was filmed in an eerily similar location to this tiny little West Texas town. It's the place where my Mimi and Pappy lived. Not only is the landscape vacuous and expansive, the heat and humidity are beyond oppressive. And the scorpion and rattlesnake population is a hundred times that of the humans in the area. Worse yet, if you encounter a snake or a dude with a chainsaw, no one would ever hear you scream. So the only safe place from the heat and humidity and poisonous critters and chainsaws is indoors, in front of the TV. With the air conditioner rattling in the window, my wide-eyed, innocent, eight-year-old self somehow convinced my kind-hearted West Texas grandparents to let me watch that week's made-for-TV horror movie. The feature presentation was supposedly inspired by a true story about an infamous series of kidnappings. The basic premise was simple. A ratty old Dodge Charger would pull up to an unsuspecting group of kids. The passenger door would swing open, an arm would reach out, grab a kid, and off they'd go. The door would slam shut, tires would screech, and the phantom car would disappear on the horizon. And the child was never seen again. I imagined the abducted kids were kept in the musty, rat-infested cellar in the middle of nowhere. Think of the basement in the black phone, or better yet, the cellar in the evil dead. Of course, I don't actually know how the story goes because I didn't make it past the first abduction. I was eight. I had seen enough. I was utterly terrified and forever traumatized. Not only did I stay inside, but I wasn't able to sleep through the night for weeks. To this day, I still get shivers down my spine just thinking about hanging out on a street corner by myself, or even worse, left alone in a dark, dingy basement. Not a whole lot different than what I'm doing here right now. It was supposed to be just another carefree trip to Mimi and Pappy's house. Instead, that summer, I experienced real, soul-shaping fear. And I haven't been the same since. Everybody's story is unique, so you might not be as freaked out as I am by the idea of being abducted and held in the basement. Your thing might be evil clowns or psychotic killers or demonic forces. But the one thing we all hold in common is that all of our fears, whatever they may be, start somewhere. They have an origin. Our ability to understand how horror films not only tap into our deepest fears, but also give us an opportunity to wrestle with what terrorizes us depends upon our willingness to identify and explore the moments in our lives when we first learn to fear. I realize that's easier said than done, but given how much my early encounters with film-based fear affected me, I was curious to know if others had similar experiences. So I asked my Brim Film co-director, Elijah Davidson, whether he had any lasting memories of fear that were cinematic in nature. Probably my third oldest memory uh, does involve a movie. It was um, Raiders of the Lost Ark. I saw the end scene where they opened the ark and the ghosts come out, the angels yeah. come out or whatever, and like, you know, decimate the Nazis. Yeah. Face and melting. A lot face, of face melting, melting and yeah, lots of screaming. And I was probably I don't know, three or four years old. Shut your eyes, Mary, and don't look at it no matter what happens. I remember like stuffing my face into the couch cushions and like <laughs> made me think about it. But it, yeah, it scared the scared the Jesus out of me or into me maybe and my mom talks about remembering like seeing the fear like wash over her three-year-old son or whatever you know as watching this thing and feeling so bad about it because she she grew up a very scared child um, and never wanted her kids to feel fear the way that she did after talking to Elijah I knew I was on to something 
So I began asking the same couple of questions to anyone who'd agree to talk to me about it. First, what's your earliest memory of being afraid? And second, can you remember the first time you were scared by a film or a TV show? My first test subject was Josh Larson, a film critic who hosts the critically acclaimed podcast Film Spotting and is the author of the new book, Fear Not. Okay, Josh, what's your earliest memory of being afraid? I can remember seeing, you know, even edited for TV versions of films like Psycho and The Shining. So, you know, a lot of the, you know, very explicit stuff has been cut out. It still terrified me. And the context would be every Sunday night, all growing up, my extended family would gather at a great aunt's house, say. And this would be after the Sunday evening church service. The adults would all gather. They were talking, ignoring the kids. You know, these were uh, late 70s, early 80s, different era of parenting. You kind of just let the kids run wild as we did. And they it would go long. So it would go into the night. Younger kids would fall asleep here and there. And I was among the older kids. And we'd end up watching something, right? Usually in the basement on TV. And every once in a while, it would be one of these horror films. And yes. I can distinctly remember having some comfort in having cousins around, but you know, you get home and you're in your bedroom alone and that movie is right there still fresh in your mind. I can also remember going on a trip with a neighborhood friend and his family to visit their family out of state. And somehow again, kids left alone, you know, this was the era of his older cousins watching Friday the 13th. And I was so scared from watching that, that I woke up in the middle of the night and went from the room where I was sleeping with my friend and his cousins to find his aunt and uncle and wake them up. Because and Imagine as a kid, you know, these people, they were strangers to me. I didn't know them at all, but they were adults. They felt safe. And I just needed a grown up in the room for a few minutes. So, so yeah, I, I think the movies, the movies did do a number on me fairly young. Creepy basements. Check. Older cousins, check. Absentee parents, also check. Sprinkle in the horror movie of your choice, and it's like a perfect recipe for scaring the living daylights out of a kid. And as film professor Craig Detweiler points out, if you dial it in just right, this terrifying concoction can take on a life of its own, permanently searing itself into a person's imagination. I was shook by Night of the Living Dead. They're coming for you, Barbara. Stop it. You're acting like a child. They're coming for you. Look, there comes one of them now. I'm old enough that the only way that you could see films back as a kid was whatever was on TV. It was pre-video rental days. And I just happened to be up at night. Parents are already asleep. House is dark. My younger brother and sister are asleep. And I'm watching Night of the Living Dead, not really knowing what's going to happen. And of course, a really horrible thing happens <laughs> in the first five minutes. And it only gets worse. Even what was going on, I think, in around me was similar. Like, if there was rain on the roof, there was rain in the movie. And if there was, like, lightning, you know, outside, there was lightning. You know, like, it was just like, is this happening to me? I just totally sunk into it. and. um I, I really, I was shaken in a way that I was like, I can't believe a film could be that scary. In a good way. Uh, sure, I was scarred, but I think I was probably scarred in a good way. Wait, what? Scary and horrifying in a good way? 
I don't know about you, but I'm always fascinated when I hear people like Josh and Craig talk about how much they appreciate and even enjoy the way scary movies make them feel. When I think of the times I've been scared or scarred by a movie, I definitely wouldn't describe the experience as good. If anything, it feels like I survived those movies, and just barely. But maybe that's because I've let those early memories grow into something far bigger and more terrifying than they actually were. If so, I'm in pretty good company. In fact, more than one member of our own production crew was scared to death of E.T., of all things, when they were kids. Here's TJ talking about Spielberg's classic tale of horror. It was his voice, and it's still scary. Stephen didn't fare much better when staring down that terrifying little alien. I think for me, the reason E.T. was so scary was the way the creature looked and moved. I remember the feeling like you could see the texture of his skin and and the the creepy movements that he made. And I think it was probably the first representation of an alien that I had seen in a movie that looked real. And it really, really bothered me. And... I've had an aversion to Reese's Pieces ever since. So maybe people like myself, Steven, and TJ are just different than people like Craig and Josh. Maybe they're able to narrate their childhood experiences differently. Instead of remembering it as completely traumatic, they can look back as an adult and see some of the ways they've grown in their ability to respond well to terror. Still. I'm willing to bet if we talk to people who don't yet have the kind of perspective that only comes with age, they might not have such a rosy picture of the films that scared them. So to get a second opinion on whether children can really experience their earliest fears as scary but good, I went to the experts. Kids. Like we were, I was first watching Honey, I Shrunk My Kids. I thought it was like a horror movie or something. I don't know. Um, it was probably because we were outside and I was like afraid that like a giant ant was going to come along or a giant bee or something. Well, I'd never watched the movie before, so I thought it was some scary thing, some horror movie. I don't know. <laughs> the idea of getting shrunk sounds sort of terrifying when you say it out loud. Well, actually, no, getting shrunk, that, that doesn't sound... I'm really scared saying it, but the idea, well, that's... That's Keegan. He's 10. And as it turns out, the same goes for older kids, too, including my oldest daughter. When she was six, we planned a special date for Father's Day to go see the Pixar movie Inside Out. We bought our tickets at the box office, purchased overpriced soda and popcorn, and we're on our way to find our seats. That's when she sees a life-size cardboard cutout of the character Anger from the movie, who, as she tells it, looks like a demon. That's when she lost it. She was so scared of that character that no amount of pleading from her dad could convince her that everything was going to be fine and that the movie wasn't actually scary at all. Do you remember what we did, do? We just went home and I ate my bag of candy on the couch <laughs> at home. Like father, like daughter, I suppose. It wasn't a made-for-TV horror movie about kidnappings, but it didn't matter. I watched terror overwhelm her before we even got to our seats. It was as if my daughter's fear was materializing before my very eyes, and its origin was, of all things, a Pixar movie. Which is why, when I sat down with Pete Docter, the writer and director of films like Toy Story, Up, Monsters, Inc., Soul, and Inside Out, I didn't ask him about what it's like to make family-friendly movies. Instead, 
I wanted to know more about the Fear Factory, otherwise known as Pixar Animation Studios. Okay, so Pete, I have two questions for you. First, I'm really interested in why you and your team at Pixar insist on making such terrifying movies. But before we get there, I want to know, what's your earliest memory of being afraid? I was afraid in all movies. The idea of going in and I know this is going to make me feel something, uh, that was kind of, I was very, I guess I was a sensitive child. I don't know. I, I remember seeing Buck Rogers at a drive-in. And that's not like a super intense, it's kind of a popcorn film. But it was, it was a lot, you know, um, for me. Uh, I saw The Rescuers, the original release of The Rescuers. That's probably what got me into animation in a weird way. It's not a great, not a great movie. It has some great animation in it. Um, but there again, there's some kind of dark places where the kid's being kidnapped in the swamp or whatever it is. I think it was just the highly empathetic nature of me as a kid that made movies intense, you know, super intense and scary. I had a colleague, uh, this guy Lee Unkrich, who directed Coco and Toy Story 3. He saw The Shining early on, like when he was 12. I would have gone insane if I'd seen that movie when I was 12. That's super intense. I would, I don't have the, my threshold is really low, I guess. Side note, Pete's right. Lee Unkrich is a super fan of The Shining. Not only has he written a book on the film, but he runs a website devoted to the movie called The Overlook Hotel. He also helped fund the documentary Room 237, which is about Shining superfans and their many theories about the film. Toy Story 3, which Unkrich directed, has a number of parallels to The Shining, but as far back as the first Toy Story, he was nodding toward The Shining by doing little things like making the carpet in Sid's house the same as the carpet in the Overlook Hotel. More from Lee in a later episode, but for now, back to Pete. When I was very young, you'd see movies in a movie theater, and then video you know, VHS comes out, and there's the whole Betamax thing. But somebody had rented Dawn of the Dead, and I literally could not eat for two days. I just felt so churned up inside to see, like, people's heads getting chopped off and stuff. Like, oh, that was not fun for me. <laughs> Dawn of the Dead, The Shining, Night of the Living Dead, Inside Out. Whether you're a well-known filmmaker like Pete Doctor or one of my kids, the range of movies that scare us is pretty broad, and the specific fears we associate with these films seem to be equally diverse. Some are unique to our personal experiences and reflect our individual personalities. Others are more primal and enduring, possibly even universal. Like, for example, the near-universal belief in and fear of ghosts. Which brings us right back to where we started, the Mabel Forreston cellar, where I agreed to meet my friends, Brad and Nikki. So we're stepping into a cellar that goes, I'd say about six feet below the main house. Concrete steps are definitely as old as the original structure. And now that I'm down here, I'd say it's a good 10 to 15 degrees cooler than it is outside. The walls are all a mixture of stone and concrete, and there's a single wire running along the ceiling that leads to a lone light bulb in the center with a tiny little pull chain. Okay, so let's start at the beginning, Brad. From what I recall, you said you and Nikki moved here and needed to remodel, but you kept running into problems until you meet a guy named Jose. Is that right? Yeah, we had at least two months where very little took 
place here. And so then Jose came into our lives. Basically, Jose at that point in November, December, took over the bulk of the work in the house. He had had this really bad relationship with his ex-wife, essentially hired someone to kill him, and he drove a car into the vehicle that Jose was driving. It was a serious, serious car accident. And then after that, Jose claimed he could see things. We also have another problem where people were stealing packages and other things from the back because the back of the house was completely open to the alley. It wasn't livable. And then Jose started, not unbeknownst to us, he started like sleeping in the basement. It, it was unbeknownst to us for a while. <laughs> and then I think I saw a sleeping bag here. I, you said that and I was like, hey, is Jose sleeping here? He's like, yeah, I asked him to sleep here. For those of you keeping score at home, after months of no progress on the remodel, Brad and Nikki meet Jose, who's had a traumatic brain injury and also sees ghosts. Oh, and don't forget, he's been sleeping in their cellar. He was definitely off. He had some serious anxiety issues. One day, Jose was at the side of the house next to where we were, and Jose is working in that area, kind of patching up some work, and he's frozen in place. I go over to talk, like, Jose, what's up? And he's like, I just saw a ghost. But it's not like what you think. It's a good ghost. This is not the first time I've seen him. He lives here. This is his home. I was like, Jose, what do you mean? There's this six foot man. He's a German man with a mustache. And he wears those like Lederhosen style pants. And he was just here. He's a good, good ghost. And he was like, I was sleeping in the basement. I woke up and he was looking right at me in the basement. And he was just looking at me. And I just saw him again. You know, he's here to protect your family. And he's glad that a loving family has moved in because I don't think he would have been very happy if a bad family came here. A six-foot-tall, good German ghost dressed in Lederhosen and donning a mustache, wandering their property. As soon as I heard this, I knew I had to talk to Jose. There was just one problem. Jose was nowhere to be found. Not too much longer after the work on Brad and Nicky's house came to an end, his uncle suddenly lost contact with his most trusted and skilled employee— he tried repeatedly to get in touch with Jose and even contacted various friends and family members to see what might have happened to him. But after a few months, all the leads dried up. Jose had disappeared. Or at least that's the story Brad's uncle is telling. Call me a skeptic, but if I'm being perfectly honest, I find Jose's story a bit hard to swallow. And in general, I deal with my own skepticism by consulting the research. Right now, some of my favorite experimental research falls into a domain called cognitive psychology, which is focused on how humans perceive and process information in their environment, and also how our thoughts are deeply enmeshed with our emotions. I mention this because according to the leading researchers in cognitive psychology, when it comes to fear, certain aversions are not only natural, but are also very helpful. For example, there's a reason for the universal fear of snakes, but not puppies or kittens. There's also a reason when we hear strange sounds at night that our first thought is danger. If we're wrong and there's no ghost or some other predator lurking in the darkness after all, no harm, no foul. But if we're right and someone or something is really hiding behind the garage door, we're ready to fight or flee. This is why we're prone to imagine things like ghosts or some other malevolent agent. It's because our minds are biased to generate false positives. That is, we react as if there's something there, even when there isn't. So from a psychological perspective, fear can be an incredibly helpful tool. 
It's a viscerally powerful emotion that allows us to assess and respond to threats. It's designed to help us survive when we feel unsafe or when our lives are threatened. But fear isn't just about running for our lives. It's also the product of a unique blend of our memories, our expectations, our interpretive frameworks, and our personalities. It's why William James, the father of American psychology, once famously asked, do we run from a bear because we're afraid? Or are we afraid because we run? What James was saying is that while the possibility of being mauled by a bear can and indeed should induce fear, we actually don't realize we're afraid until we're running. It reminds me of a story that my friend and colleague, Dr. Tim Bastelin shared with me as I was interviewing him for the podcast. One time I went to visit a friend in Yellowstone. Uh, she was working there for the summer and I was in college and there was a sign posted where she was staying that said, don't go in this area, there's grizzly bears there. And of course I was like, let's go see the grizzly bears. <laughs> and we went out on the trail that it said not to go on <laughs> and we saw a grizzly bear. And then in my awe, I was like, wait a minute, this was a bad idea. <laughs> so I, I longed, I desired that awe and I had that moment. And But it was also like, no, you're you're mortal and you're about to die. <laughs> this is not not okay. <laughs> You might have had a similar experience to Tim. Despite the literal warning signs calling out the danger that lies ahead, you don't even know to be afraid until you come face to face with a bear and you find yourself backing away or running away because you suddenly feel vulnerable. If fear is what caused us to run rather than the other way around, we wouldn't blow past those warning signs telling us not to go into the grizzly bear area in the first place. In other words, as human beings, we all have a biochemical response to perceived threats. It's automatic and reflexive. We don't even have to be conscious of it. But the emotion we call fear happens after this reflexive response, and it's highly individualized. Some people love the thrill of bungee jumping or other high-risk activities, whereas others are terrified by the prospect. Same risks, same biochemical response— completely different reaction to the feeling of fear that follows. Something similar is happening when we watch a horror film. All of our senses are put on high alert by the audiovisual tactics that a filmmaker uses, which means it sure feels like we're running from a bear. It's enough to startle us and make us jump, but it's not quite enough to genuinely terrify us. So when a horror film works, when it succeeds in filling us with an unshakable sense of dread, anxiety, and fear, it's activating the same underlying psychological circuitry that would be triggered if we did see a bear in the wild. But we're not running because we're afraid. We're afraid because we're running. Whatever you do, don't run! Oh no! Oh no! I said don't run! Stop! Stop! Maybe the fear movies like Halloween or The Exorcist evoke in us isn't just about random acts of violence or supernatural evil. Maybe it's deeper than that. Maybe these films are powerful and stay with us because they recall moments in our lives when we realized, perhaps for the very first time, that the world we inhabit might not be as safe as we assumed it to be. After all, as different as we all are, the best horror films and best horror filmmakers seem to be able to tap into a set of underlying emotions that many of us hold in common. And according to all the people I've interviewed about their first memory of being afraid, these deeply held emotions can often be traced back to their earliest experiences of fear. 
we can enter any home we want, and we will want, as wanting as our will on this fine night. Don't force us to hurt you. We don't want to kill our own. Please just let us purge. When it comes to filmmakers who know how to tap into our core fears in order to truly scare the bejesus out of us, my friend and filmmaker Scott Derrickson is at the top of pretty much everyone's lists. Literally. Scott has made huge blockbuster movies in the Marvel Cinematic Universe like Doctor Strange, but he actually cut his filmmaking teeth on making horror films. He first came on the scene with The Exorcism of Emily Rose, and he more recently released The Black Phone two films where the jump scares are rivaled only by the superb storytelling, and great performances from the likes of Ethan Hawke, Laura Linney, and Jennifer Carpenter. In fact, thanks in part to its dramatic reveals and super creepy set pieces, Scott's 2012 film Sinister has been ranked by Rotten Tomatoes as one of the top 10 scariest movies of all time. Pro tip, if you're a parent thinking about watching Sinister, just be warned that you'll never look at your kids the same way again. Scott also happens to be an incredibly thoughtful person and has always been generous enough to share his time and talent with us. After a recent screening of his film Sinister, I sat down with Scott and a few of our closest friends and asked him to help us understand a bit more about what originally drew him to the horror genre. I mean, I think that it started when I was young. I always had a certain attraction to gothic imagery. I used to build haunted houses in my basement. Side note. When Scott refers to gothic imagery, he's talking about a whole genre of storytelling known for inducing intense feelings of dread, shock, revulsion, or fear. Gothic stories often picture the world as dark, decaying, and malevolent, filled as it is with monsters, demons, witches, ghosts, and other supernatural creatures. Yeah, I always liked the idea of scaring people. You know, it's funny when you think about Halloween. It's a child's holiday. It's not for adults. Adults don't really celebrate Halloween. They don't get into it. And that's not true of any of the other major holidays. And yet, the things that are celebrated on Halloween are the very things that we think we have to protect children from. Ghosts and devils and monsters. And there is something in children that really, they understand this basic idea of these things that scare me. If we dress up in them and we sort of deal with them, and it becomes very exciting. There's something very purging. And of course, that's part of the experience. So I was that kid for sure. You know, Wes Craven, you know, who directed the Nightmare on Elm Street movies and the Scream movies, said something, you know, very poignant once. I think it was in an interview that I did with him where he said, uh, horror films don't create fear, they release it. I think that people who are drawn to these movies do have a, a certain commonality, which is you've got fear to be released, man. Horror films don't create fear, they release it. The appeal of horror films has at least something to do with the way they tap into our most basic fears, even for those who don't personally enjoy the experience of being scared. But if Scott and Wes Craven are right, we also feel compelled to watch because whether we know it or not, we have a profound longing not to avoid our fears, but for our fears to be set free. I'm going to return more than once to the question of what it means for our fears to be released, in part because the basic human impulse for our fears to be set free can be traced back to the beginning, not just the beginning of our individual stories about the first time we can remember being scared, but the beginning of all beginnings. The way the Christian tradition tells the story, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. 
But something happened with the very first humans, something that's haunted every human since. Driven by desires they didn't fully comprehend, the man and the woman ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The consequences were catastrophic. After eating the forbidden fruit, God asks the man why he's hiding. The man replies, I was afraid because I was naked. What if the cosmic rupture that took place in the garden wasn't just about disobedience? What if, lying just underneath their decision to reject God's command, the first humans were driven by misplaced and misdirected fears? It seems that, in this origin of all origin stories, Adam and Eve's fear of not having access to the knowledge provided by that tree overrode their fear of God. In other words, the problem wasn't that they were afraid. The problem was that they were afraid of the wrong thing. Just to be sure I wasn't reading into the story more than what's actually there, I consulted with a couple other experts. I first talked to Dr. Russell Moore, who is Christianity Today's editor-in-chief and the director of the Public Theology Project. Dr. Moore, what do you think? Is it fear or disobedience that's more central to the Genesis story? Well, I don't think it's an either-or between disobedience and fear, because the message that the serpent is giving is something's being withheld from you. Uh, you're, you're not being told everything, which if you think about how horror works in literature or in film or anywhere else, there's a sense there's something out there that's not telling me the truth. I'm not, I'm not seeing things as they really are. And that's the message the serpent gives is God's not telling you everything. And so in order to be, you know, he, he gives this simultaneous promise of you can be a God, knowing good from evil, and you can be an animal. You're listening to a, a creeping thing. And so both of those things at the same time. Uh, so I, I think it is, it's clearly, of course, disobedience, but it also is a hook, is on a good desire, because God had designed the man and the woman to eat and to participate in the life of the trees, just not that one and also to protect yourself. God's not going to protect you, you have to protect yourself. Encouraged by my conversation with Dr. Moore, I posed the same question to Dr. Tim Basselin, who is a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary for eight years before becoming Director of Student Life and the Associate Professor of Ministry, Theology, and Culture at Western Seminary this past year. So Tim, Am I off base in thinking that fear is a pretty strong motivator for this first act of human rebellion? When I listen to what you're saying, I hear basically a critique of modernism, that in a lot of the modernistic ways that particularly our Christianity in America has grown up in, we want to reduce things to simple equations. We want to reduce things to mental equations. So we want choice to be primary too often. And so I feel like we don't take into consideration enough of, you know, okay, there's the choice that's made, but why? Where's that coming from? There's other parts of what it means to be human besides just a decision that I end up making. It's not that the decision's not important, but if we center disobedience just in the decision, we're losing a lot of what it means to be human. And you end up like, Paul in Romans 7, I know what I'm supposed to do, but I can't do it. So if Paul can't do the things he knows he's supposed to do, kind of what what sort of hope do we have <laughs> of like trying to become better and not disobey God? 
Well, if we're looking underneath just what our specific decisions are and we're asking, where's that coming from? How is that involving more of who I am as a person, my whole body, my emotions, my fears, my loves, my desires? So rather than only trying to train our minds, that we're also training us what it means to be human, which involves our fear, involves our desire, it involves our love. If Dr. Moore and Dr. Baslin are right, to focus only on obedience and to ignore the underlying fears that drove the first humans to rebel in the first place is to miss out on an important part of what it means to be human. And if we only focus on surface behaviors, we might never uncover those deeper motivations that drive us, in the words of Paul, to do the things we don't want to do. The story of the Garden of Eden might not be the one you would draw upon to make sense of your lived experience, but whatever your worldview, the point is that the fear we encounter and explore when we watch a horror movie has an origin, both in our own individual stories and in the greater human story in which we all participate. Indeed, there are very few things that all humans in all places and at all times share in common, but fear might very well be one of them. And not just any kind of fear, mind you, Behind all of the anxiety and dread is an inescapable reality that, as much as we try to avoid it, ignore it, or deny it, is as absolute as it is certain. Pop? Yeah? Are you afraid of death? Yeah. Me too. There's no way out of it. You're going to die. I'm going to die. It's going to happen. And what difference does it make if it's tomorrow or 80 years? Much sooner in your case. Do you know how fast time goes? I was six, like yesterday. Me too. I'm going to die. You are going to die. What else is there to be afraid of? back to the cellar. So now you're a couple of months into the project of remodeling your house. Not much progress has taken place, but Jose is seeing a ghost in Lederhosen haunting the property. And even though he swears it's a good ghost who's glad you moved in, he's also sleeping in your cellar to ward off thieves in the night. What happens next? This has started to precipitate in August. We had a, had a rush move here and it was more or less a complete gut. It hadn't been updated since like the late 1960s. The team of three workers worked for my uncle who was the contractor and I came in and met everybody and he was the only skilled worker. The other two workers were largely unskilled. He was doing almost all the work. He's clearly driving everything. Brad and Nikki can't quite remember the name of this particular employee during our interview. But of course, what happens to him is something they'll never forget. Two or three weeks after we met him, and he'd been working here like almost every day, he told me my ex-girlfriend put a curse on me. I just dismissed it in a kind way. I was like, what are you talking about? Like, that's, that kind of stuff doesn't happen. And you're going to be fine. And if you're not feeling well, like, go go to the doctor. What is the doctor saying? And they're like, oh, he's like, oh, I've been to the doctor. 
they say everything's fine, yeah. but I just know. By that point, they had gotten past a lot of the demos. And then one day, it was on a Wednesday, I came down and I was coming every day and he said, this is it for me, I'm, I'm really gonna die. This hex has gotten to me, like I've talked to my family. He had contacted his daughter and he was like, yeah, this is the end for me. I was like, you're worried about COVID? And he was like, no, I don't believe in any of that Western medicine. I only go to like a faith healer, curandera. He had gone to the curandera the weekend before and the curandera said, this is it for you. You have to put your, your everything in place. And, but he looked, he looked fine. For those of you who might not be familiar with Latin American holistic medicine, a curandera is a kind of non-traditional medical practitioner who deals in shamanistic and spiritual approaches to psychological, physical, and spiritual ailments. He was like, I just feel like something's wrong. Well, you know, maybe like take it easy, like take it easy for a few days if you're not feeling well. And he was like, no, but this is what I, like, I really like to come here and do this work. But he didn't have any diagnosis. And he's like, I've put my things in order. I've said goodbye to my, my daughter and my family. The curandera said the curse is going to do me in this month. He came the next day, Thursday. But then on Friday, I was like, where's the other dude? And one of the other two workers was like, something awful, terrible's happened. And my uncle, I call him on Monday, and he was like, yeah, that guy's he's dead. He was like not coughing out blood. He was bleeding out of his mouth. And before my uncle could get like any information from the doctors, he died that Friday morning. And the emergency room doctors were like flabbergasted. Like they didn't know what happened. They couldn't find anything wrong with them. Brad's uncle goes on to tell him that when his employee first approached him about the curandera's diagnosis, he thought it would help if he took the man to get a second opinion. Not from a doctor of Western medicine, but from another curandera. <laughs> Brad's uncle was hoping that a second curandera would surely say that there was nothing to worry about. Unfortunately, that didn't happen. The second curandera just doubled down and said he had less than 30 days to live. The curse, it turns out, could not be broken. Of course, you can't keep a story like that under wraps for long. Eventually, the other workers find out and it puts everyone on edge. Working on haunted grounds is one thing. Having a coworker cursed and bleeding to death is a whole other story. So pretty soon, Brad has lost his entire workforce. For some crazy reason, no one wants to risk being cursed to death by working on his haunted property. I think one of the reasons I'm generally skeptical of stories like the one Brad is telling isn't because I reject the idea of a spiritual world. I think it's more because of how often in my life I've heard stories just like this coming from people who were trying to leverage my fear for their own agenda. Keep in mind, I grew up before 24-hour news outlets and social media companies turned to scare tactics as their primary marketing strategy and business model. I was a kid during the satanic panic of the 80s, so I've heard my fair share of demonic voices coming from audio tapes of 911 recordings or vinyl records played backwards which means I'm not the only one who grew up in a context where fear was weaponized. Whether we're talking about those raised in the 80s, 90s, or 2000s, we now have generations of people who are totally confused about the true origins of our fears. And this is to say nothing of whether we should be afraid of the things a talking head on the TV tells us to fear. It reminds me again of that origin story of all origin stories the one that takes place in a garden with an off-limits tree and an infamous serpent. 
The creature our ancestors encountered in that garden wasn't a snake. It was the world's very first fearmonger. Adam and Eve never stood a chance. What they thought was a desire for forbidden fruit was actually misplaced fear. We may not be as tempted by fruit as the first humans were, but we are no less susceptible to the cunning operations of modern day serpents who feed off our anxieties by manufacturing all sorts of bogus fears. Immigrants, the government, poor people, rich people, socialists, capitalists, Republicans, Democrats, no matter how unfounded or absurd our fears are, in an attention economy, which treats human attention as a scarce commodity, all that matters is that we are kept in a constant state of frenzied anxiety. Whatever it takes to keep our attention focused on anything and everything other than what we truly ought to fear. Some of you may be thinking the obvious solution here is to just avoid horror altogether. Turn off the TV so that you aren't subjected to the rantings of the fear mongers who are manufacturing fear, and then cancel all your streaming subscriptions so that you never have to see any kind of fictionalized horror either. Now, all of us really could be more thoughtful and discerning about our media consumption, but for those of you who simply prefer puppies over Pennywise, I promise we'll get to these concerns in the next episode. So stick with us. Between now and then, just as a reminder, I'm not trying to convert anyone into a horror fan or suggest that everyone should watch every horror film that comes out. The genre isn't for everyone, and like any other category of film, there are plenty of movies no one needs to bother with. But even if you decide to avoid watching horror films for the rest of your life, the benefit of listening to a podcast about horror is that by coming to a deeper understanding of the genre, you might begin to see the real-world horrors you encounter on a daily basis, but just never learn to fear. In other words, whether you ever watch another horror film or not, by listening to this podcast, you might actually understand more about what it means to fear rightly. And at least part of what it means to fear rightly is acknowledging the origin of our fears so that we can face them rather than be consumed by them. That said, I'm not naive enough to suggest that we're going to solve our current culture of fear by simply watching more horror movies. I'm also not trying to suggest that the only way to face our fears is to binge watch all 10 movies in the Saw franchise. Still, just to be sure I'm not getting ahead of myself and possibly giving horror films a bit too much credit, I decided to consult with Dr. Brad Strong, an author, teacher, and clinical psychologist well-versed in the various strategies we use to repress, respond to, or control our fears. So from your perspective as a professional, am I way off base in thinking that the fear we experience in a horror movie might actually come with some benefits? Again, I think, you know, being afraid is not a bad thing. Anxiety is not a bad thing. They have their places. Without them, we walk into traffic. We grab hot things on the stove. You know, we, we tell the big guy in line that he should shut up. Um, these are bad ideas, right? And so um, it's just a matter of, you know, given our own histories. And again, I think this is really important to highlight, Cutter, is that, you know, uh, everybody has a history, a developmental history that they bring to a scary movie or bring to a relationship or bring to their religion and spirituality. And they experience those things through that developmental history. Um, so for some people, you know, they just riding a roller coaster and seeing a Stephen King movie is the same. Some people can ride a roller coaster, but 
would just lose it if they watched a Stephen King movie because they're watching death in a different way. You might be experiencing a kind of fear of death on a roller coaster, but it feels very different to some people based on their history. If Dr. Strawn and all the psychological research I mentioned earlier are correct, then fear itself isn't the problem. The problem is when we allow fear to get in the way of our ability to live. We become fear's victims when the origin of our fears goes unaddressed and unacknowledged, and we instead direct our fears towards some other source, something we often need not fear at all. Remember, after eating the forbidden fruit, Adam told God he was afraid because he was naked. But he'd been naked since the moment God breathed life into his body. So he was very clearly lying, either to God or to himself or perhaps to both. He simply could not acknowledge the real source of his fears. Adam wasn't afraid because he was naked. He was afraid because he allowed the desire of his heart to be directed towards something other than God. And we've been living with the consequences ever since. I often find myself, just like Adam, pointing to something like nakedness as the source of my fears. I'm what doctors like to call a little bit of a workaholic. <laughs> so I work and work and work because of my fear of impoverishment. Or at least that's what I tell myself. But the real origin of my fear is that if I stop, then I'll have to deal with the anxiety and depression that threatens to suck the joy from my existence at every waking moment. And that truly terrifies me. You see, I'm not afraid of poverty any more than Adam was afraid of nakedness. I'm afraid because I don't want to be left alone to deal with me. Worse yet, I don't trust that God does either. You may or may not relate, but if you're anything like me or Adam, we've become expert at avoiding what we truly fear. Speaking of avoiding what we fear, let's get back to my conversation with Brad in his cellar. All right, let me, let me get this straight. At this point, not only do you have yourself a haunted piece of property, but now people working on that property are dropping dead from curses which means that none of the crew you hired to do the work are willing to show up to what is clearly a haunted, potentially cursed site. And I gotta say, I'm <laughs> kind of with them. But if I recall from that first time you told me about this story, it gets even creepier. We learned about the headstone. Wait a minute. You're telling me that you found a headstone in this cellar. Now, I know what a headstone is. I wanna make sure you know what a headstone is because it sounds like we might be standing on top of a grave. Well, yeah, it, it's been sitting there, been sitting there ever since his sister bought the house. Yeah. I think she told us about yeah. it. But also, initially we thought it was like a pet. Spoiler alert, it wasn't a pet. A few weeks after the interview, Brad and Nikki invited my family over for dinner and games. While we were there, Brad told me that while digging post holes, he did come across a buried pet, Sprinkles the Cat. He knew the cat's name because it was buried in a custom-made coffin in the backyard, along with the silver bell bearing his name that once hung from the cat's collar. Thanks to Brad's oldest daughter, that bell now hangs from the lemon tree in their backyard. But like I said, the headstone in Brad and Nikki's cellar did not belong to a cat. The dates are 1906 to 1907, so it's the headstone from a one-year-old child, which means, well, I'll let them tell the story. When we moved in in April, Jose, he had stacked all the bricks, like just traditional bricks, along the side of a fence and put the headstone on top. I asked Jose, like, was this headstone connected with this German guy who came? 
It's like, no, no, they're not connected. It's not connected at all. That's another person. It's a good, it's a good presence to have in your house. And I was like, well, it's a baby. She's like, this is, this is the presence that you want in your house. When my uncle came to finally take away all the crap that was in the back, hit the folks that he brought, not including Jose, <laughs> but other people, they wouldn't touch it. So it remains there in the back. So you have a Lederhosen-wearing ghost haunting the property, but at least he's okay with you being here. Then you also have people working on your house who are bleeding to death from curses. And then you also have the presence of what seems to be a one-year-old child whose headstone is first discovered in your cellar by Jose, who would often sleep down here to protect the property. By the way, you said you put the headstone in its place, but I don't see it down here. Where is it? Brad took me to see the headstone because no one else would touch it and he and Nikki didn't feel like it would be appropriate to dispose of it. Brad laid it down as one of the stones along their walkway in the backyard. And it sits there to this day, a haunting reminder of the possibility that buried in their cellar is the body of a one-year-old child who, depending upon who you ask, now haunts their property. I don't know what exactly happened here in 1906. All I know is that the headstone is surrounded by what is now a lovely backyard. Or at least that's what I'd imagine I would say if I'd visited during the daytime. Maybe it's because I'm sitting here in what I am now convinced is a haunted basement, but Brad's story about transforming his terror into a stepping stone reminds me of the 2014 film The Babadook. The two main characters, Amelia and Sam, go through all sorts of hell trying to escape from a terrifying presence that has suddenly entered their lives. But Amelia in particular is willing to go to almost any length to just get rid of the monster known as Mr. Babadook. Her fear has an origin story, one rooted in the traumatic loss of her husband. But her refusal to face the true source of her fears leads her to a point where she becomes completely consumed by them. Thankfully, her son Sam remains with her, reminding her of the truth she was trying so hard to deny. You can't get rid of the Babadook. It's only when she allows herself to hear this piece of wisdom that she fully understands her only choice is to confront her fears directly. The film ends not with the elimination of her fears, but with the Babadook living in the basement, sustained and cared for by Amelia. Rather than a source of terror, the basement becomes a site of transformation and healing for Amelia, a place where she can relate to her fears with the compassion they deserve. Like anybody else, I'm not always sure what to do with the things that really scare me. There are moments when I think I'm, I'm ready to confront my fears directly, to identify their origins so that I can undo the hold they have on my life. But if I'm being perfectly honest... Sometimes that is the last thing I want to do. I mean, seriously, who willingly chooses to visit a haunted basement just so they can understand more about why they fear the things they do? And the fact that I am only now asking that question makes me think there is an outside chance that I may be a wee bit over my head here. <laughs> that said, uh, one thing I've realized while sitting in this basement and listening to Brad's story is that I don't think we're interested in just any kind of fear. We're actually after a particular kind of fear, the kind that, that remakes our life from within. So even though I'm by no means a professional filmmaker, 
I'd like to go back and offer a yes and to Scott Derrickson's and Wes Craven's thoughts on how horror films release fear. When I think about Brad's story, I'd say horror doesn't just release fear. When the genre is at its best, horror transforms our fear. What about you? What scares you and why? Can you remember the first time you were truly scared? Think about it, put words to it and ask yourself, what is it about that memory that has so deeply influenced you? And what if horror films gave you a chance to identify the true origins of those fears so that you could no longer be terrorized by them? Because unless we name and confront the ways our fears have become misdirected and misplaced, we remain captive to them. If left unaddressed and unacknowledged, they will, one way or another, consume us. And that's what this podcast is all about. It's not about convincing people who can't stand scary movies that they should all become horror aficionados. Instead, we're engaging with horror films as a way to get each of us to pause, even if for just a moment, and to acknowledge that there really are things that scare us. But admitting that we're afraid is just the first step. For people of Christian faith, the question is, what do we do with our fears? I think the first place I started thinking when you talked about fear and desire, I thought of a painting, Monk by the Sea. It's by Fredericks, I believe. It's this landscape of the ocean. And in the front, there's like, I guess, sand. Or there's, you know, somewhere to stand. It's kind of maybe just after dusk. It's pretty dark. The clouds are full, almost stormy. And you can barely see the monk. It's kind of right in the middle of the picture. But you get this sense that we've all had when you're seeing all of the stars for the first time in a long time and you just feel small. So we talk about the fear of God in that way. I could just be wiped out so easily. Like whatever my connection is to life, it is just really tiny. <laughs> it's not large at all. And yet you also feel this feeling, this sort of desire to be part of, to be significant within that enormous, enormous, whatever that feeling is. So Rudolf Otto calls it the numinous, right? So we sometimes use that language of the, the numinous, this, this feeling of both reverence and awe, as well as, I don't know, there's, there's desire in that. That picture for me is the same as Psalm 6. And when I look at the stars, what is, what is man that you're mindful of. And I think that's an, an important place for us to come to over and over again. And it's part of the the role of awe in our lives to get out in creation, to be wowed by things, to be amazed because it makes us feel small and it makes us kind of come to deal with that question or recognize that that question. title of this podcast is Be Afraid. And the reason is because in those moments when we're being really, truly honest with ourselves, we have no other choice but to admit that fear really is a part of our lives. We can ignore it or deny it, but if we do, 
our fear is going to come in through the back door, unannounced and unexpected. But it doesn't have to be that way. What would it look like if, rather than avoiding your fears or eliminating them from your life, you tried instead to point them in another direction, toward the one who is mindful of us, fears and all? But it also makes me wonder, in a society filled with countless fear mongers, what if horror filmmakers were uniquely well-suited to teach us how to fear rightly, to help us direct our fears into the heart of that great mystery that's both inviting and terrifying. I realize that's a doozy of a question to drop on you here at the end, so we'll just have to pick it up on our next episode. As we do, we'll be meeting up with Scott Derrickson again and taking a deep dive into the various subgenres of horror. I'll be asking Scott how each of the different kinds of horror are designed to elicit a different set of fears, and how those different cinematic categories reflect in some way the origin of all our fears. As always, it'll be fun, but I'm not going to lie to you. Exploring the inner recesses of our hearts and minds never gets any easier. If anything, our eyes simply adjust to the darkness. Until next time, on Be Afraid. Be Afraid is a production of Christianity Today, Uncommon Voices Collective, and Brim Film at Fuller Theological Seminary. Our executive producer is Eric Petrick. Our producer and graphic designer is Stephen Scheidler. Editing and mixing by TJ Hester. Music by Jeremy Hunt and Koholeth. Written and hosted by me, Cutter Calloway. This episode was brought to you in part by the Table Podcast at Dallas Theological Seminary. Listen to rotating hosts discuss issues of God and culture to demonstrate theology's relevance in everyday life. Find it on your podcast app. For videos and more, visit dts.edu podcast. This episode was brought to you in part by the Better Samaritan Podcast where Jamie Ayton and Kent Annan discuss everything from simple acts of kindness to complex humanitarian challenges with their guests. Want to learn how to faithfully do good better? Find insights at The Better Samaritan.